Right, here we go. So the last few weeks, as we mentioned, we've been, we're going through the Nicene Creed, uh, uh, one of the earliest unifying statements of faith of what Christians believe. And we've looked at who Jesus is for several weeks now. We've seen he's eternally begotten of the Father. He came for us and our salvation. Uh, we saw that he was crucified and resurrected. We saw that he's been ascended. And then last week we saw that he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And um, we talked about, we asked the question last week of whether or not life is a comedy or a tragedy. Uh, and we saw that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can have confidence that life is a comedy. Not that it's funny, but that it, it goes down and then it, it goes back up, that it ends well. Hence a smile instead of a frown. So let's read together from Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to 11. And then I'll explain which part of the creed we're looking at today. So, the Apostle Paul writes this to the church. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, who does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So as a church, we've been going through the Nicene Creed, which is essentially a map through spirituality to help us help prevent us from falling off many of the cliffs around. The creed, the Nicene Creed, written in the 4th century, is a path through the jungle that saves us having to hack our own way through the various undergrowth of ideas that are around us. And we spoke in the first week about the fact that in Christian thought, there are things that are written in pencil, things that are written in ink, and things that are written in blood. The ideas in the creed are the things that are written in blood. That is the essentials of Christianity. And today we're going to be considering um, some theology and then we're going to tell some stories and we're looking at this part of the creed where it says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son and who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Spirit. There the Bible reveals to us that there is one God, but that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this can be a confusing idea, and it is difficult for us to get our heads around. But consider this. We, individually, although just one person, are often aware of having multiple versions of ourselves. Uh, the you that exists on social media, your profile pictures, uh, is a different person to the you that lies awake worrying in your bed at night. I mean, no one would think that the icon image that you put out there to the world, uh, the free and confident autonomous self that the world sees all glamorous as you are on social media, no one would think that that you also worries about the things that you do. And then the you on your own you is different also from the person you are when you're with other people. You're a different person when you're around your friends. 
So you are one person, but you have several different personas that you put out and project into the world. Or another way of thinking about it has to do with our, our jobs or our, our roles and titles. I am a father and a son and a husband, uh, and each of those roles are distinct. Each of them have a different set of expectations and responsibilities that are attached to them. Uh, you also have a professional you. You are a, a boss or an employee that has to perform a series of functions and roles. You're a grandma or a mum or whatever you may be. And those analogies might, are helpful um, for when we come to think about God, but of course they break down because, because God is not just one God with several different moods or personas of himself. God doesn't just wear different masks, the Father mask, the Son mask, the Spirit mask. God, the Bible says, is one God but three persons distinct from one another. And so today we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the Godhead is arguably the hardest person of the Godhead for us to picture or relate to. God the Father is accessible to our understanding because we have fathers. Um, we can also picture the man, Jesus, and so grasp a mental idea of God the Son. The Spirit, however, is where a lot of people perhaps come unstuck since we don't know what to picture, what to relate to. We, it's, it's not helped as well when we talk in, in some traditions where they talk about the Holy Ghost and we just we think of this force in the world that is slightly spooky. And it's probably for those reasons that the Holy Spirit is sometimes treated as though he isn't a person at all. The Holy Spirit is treated as though he's just an energy force or a feeling or a thing or an it. People sometimes pray and they talk about the Holy Spirit and they call him it. And I, I, I run a training course for students and one of my favorite things to do is to point it out publicly and rebuke them when they do that. Not really, that's okay. Or people think that the Holy Spirit is just something that you experience at a festival or at a conference in the summer. I mean, the statement that we read from the Creed, it says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, He rules, and also that He speaks two things that we associate with personhood rather than just the force from Star Wars. The Holy Spirit rules and communicates, and the Creed says He's to be worshipped and He's to be known. And so, let's get into what we're saying about the Holy Spirit, and let's ground it in the Bible passage that I read from the book of Romans at the start. In verse 6, it says, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, we sometimes talk about people having a mindset or people setting their mind on something. The Bible says that some mindsets, some ways of thinking, lead eventually to death. But the mindset, the mind that is set and made up and focused on the Holy Spirit and the way of the Spirit in our lives, Paul says that that mindset brings life and peace. So there's two different ways of thinking and being and setting our minds. And it's really this one idea, uh, there's loads we could say about the Holy Spirit, but it's this one idea that I want us to explore together today because it's that idea that's contained in the Creed as well. In the Bible passage in Romans, the idea of life and death appears several times. In the creed, it says that the Spirit is the giver of life. So what does that mean? 
What does that look like in the world? What possible difference can that make to your life today? You'll see. It's exciting. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. We're all very excited, tremendously excited. Uh, the ancient Greek word um, for life is the word bios, from which we get the word biology, the study of life. And so if the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, if the Holy Spirit is considered to be the life giver or the giver of life, uh, it would seem that to truly study biology properly is to explore the Holy Spirit, who the Bible claims is the source of all life on our planet. You see, life as it's in itself, as a distinct or separate thing and entity, life isn't something that any of us has as our possession. Your life, my life, our life is running down from the moment we're born. And we prop it up by, well, we need to keep it sustained through consuming energy sources, but we don't possess life. We need sources of fuel to give us life and keep it going. All life in the universe is a marvel and a mystery. And all life, according to the Bible, originates with God. God is the being who has always been living and who alone is the possessor, the owner of life. Everything else that is alive, the Bible says, is alive because God has loaned it life. We borrow it from him. In Genesis 1, the very start of the Bible, at the birth of the world, it says that the world was formless and dark and dead and the bible says that there the spirit of god the first second verse of the bible the spirit of god it says was hovering over the face of the water there was water in the beginning we're not told how it's there but it's there a crucial ingredient the scientists tell us a crucial ingredient for life water but just having the right ingredients doesn't make for life any more than having flour, egg, and butter on my shelf creates a cake. You need to do something with the ingredients. And the Holy Spirit, it says, was there hovering over those waters, ready perhaps to burst the waters of the universe and to cause a life to be born. The Spirit is there in the beginning, ready to give from himself. For example, um, of all animal and plant life, Psalm 104 uh, writes poetically, and, and then it says this in Psalm 104. It says, when God sends forth his spirit, they, animal and plants, they are created. Then at the creation of mankind, we see God's spirit is involved again. However you understand what it's saying, in Genesis 2, it says that God takes some of the dust. That's a, dust is a picture of death. This was hit home to me yesterday. I was uh, at a wedding and my boys found a dead insect on the ground and said, look, daddy, a dead whatever it was. And then they touched it and it just descended into dust because it was so dead and crusty. Which is a lovely image for Sunday morning. Death, the picture of death is dust. Lifeless matter is dusty. And it says in Genesis 2 that God took some of the, the dust, the death of the ground, and in, again, in the original language, the word, um, the word for tomb, the ground, the word for tomb is a very similar word to the word for womb. So 
arguably God takes from the womb of the earth, he takes some dead matter, and then God, the Bible says, breathes his spirit or his breath into the first man. It says this, the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. And then again, in another ancient book, a book perhaps older than the book of Genesis, in the book of Job, it says in verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 4, it says, the Spirit, Job says of himself, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Still with me? Yes, okay. Right, now, this, this is important, okay, because this theme of the Spirit being a life giver then gets picked up again in the New Testament to a young teenage girl. The angel says to Mary, says, you will conceive in your womb, your, the tomb, and you will bear a son. And then it says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Jesus himself then says in John 6, uh, verse 63, he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Whenever new life, physical life, comes into being, we are reminded of God. God in some way. The, the miracle of birth and life causes every parent, regardless of their belief, to just gasp. A new independent life source exists in the world. We're also told by Jesus that whenever new spiritual life comes, whenever someone puts their belief in Jesus, new life comes then as well. And the Holy Spirit is required to bring someone to life. Sometimes we say of people, um, well, you might not because you're very polite, but we say, and you don't argue, I'm sure, but we say of people, they're dead to me. If we've had a particularly strong row and we want to distance them, we say, they're dead to me. Well, that is never more true about the human being, the human race's relationship with God. We have said to God, he's dead to me. Or, I'm dead to him. We are cut off, separated from God. The Bible says that every human being, every one of us, regardless of whether you're raised going to church on a Sunday morning or to car boot sales, every one of us is born spiritually dead. And nothing in this world can start our dead-to-God heart again. No defibrillator. In verse 7 from Romans that we read, it says that we are, in fact, hostile to God. And then not only do we not, none of us, not only do we not submit to God's instructions, actually says we can't submit to God's instructions because we're, we're just dead. We're made of a, a spiritual lifelessness that makes it impossible to live up to and obey and submit to God in every way that we want. That's why uh, Jesus in John chapter 3, he says to a religious leader, he says you must, every one of us must be born again or be born anew, afresh. He says this, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being a Christian has almost nothing to do with being polite and mild-mannered and kind and watching your P's and Q's and not swearing and making sure you don't drink too much. It has nothing to do with middle-class Christianity. It has everything to do with being born again being made spiritually alive. And it's that that Jesus' death and resurrection, you see, makes possible for us. 
After Jesus has been raised from the dead, at the end of John's Gospel, uh, in scenes that, that remind us of what happened in Genesis, at the end of John's Gospel, he gathers his disciples together and Jesus breathes on them, which is odd if you've not read Genesis 2. It's odd. Jesus breathes on his disciples and he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the life giver. He imparts spiritual life as well as physical life. Okay, I know that's a lot, arguably, to take in, a lot of theology or philosophy. But understanding some of that, I think, is crucial for understanding more of what and why the Holy Spirit does in our lives and in the church today. Now, the creed just summarizes all of this by saying, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. But whenever you see, um, you see white crests on, on the waves out at sea, that's a sign that something powerful is moving deep below. The creed is like the ocean swell of detail that points to huge and significant truth down below. And the truth is that the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, brought life out of death at creation, and now He brings life out of the death of human spirituality in the recreation, the new creation. The Holy Spirit brought humanity into existence in the beginning, and now in and through Jesus, who is the Word of God, He's bringing forth a new humanity, a people imprinted with the indestructible life of Jesus. Now, when we understand how overflowing and full or, or thick and juicy or how, how bursting with energy and power is the life of the Holy Spirit in the world, that then ought to help us make sense of many of the other things that the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're told that the love of God gets poured into our hearts as Christians, gets poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We're told that he lavishes his grace upon us. He enriches the church with an abundance of gifts. And some of those words typify the Holy Spirit's life-giving nature. Poured, abundant, lavish, generous. We can begin, perhaps begin to understand why it is that, that joy and delight is often, you know, Millie's friend can experience joy and these strange people who are happy. Why? Can begin to understand why that is when we, when we realize how overflowing with life the Holy Spirit is. In Galatians 5, it says, the fruit of the Spirit, the result of having your mindset on the Spirit, living a life, walking and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It says in Romans that the kingdom of God is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians, it says you've received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, when people become Christians, it says the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the the life-giving Holy Spirit, is abundantly, joyfully, lavishly, and generously poured onto and into us when we put our hope in Jesus. That's why miserable, dull, boring church ought to feel like they are, um, what's the word? What's the word where something isn't like, not possible? What? Contradiction. Contradiction. Thank you. We'll have that. 
Um, it ought to be something that just doesn't go together. How is that possible? The life-giving Holy Spirit who produces joy in abundance and boring Christianity. How are those two things? They butt up against each other. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with overflowing, joyful, and generous, uh, an overflowing, joyful, and generous nature. And the more of him we receive, the more aware of joy and generosity we ought to experience in our lives. A friend of mine once prayed for someone and said, God, fill him with a joy that, that touches his face. Because in the church, we're so used to having a joy that's deep down. I'm very joyful. I'm very, very happy. But you just, you, you could never tell it. But I'm very happy. I'm very joyful. Now, all of this has nothing to do with temperament or personality type. And we all express the life of the Holy Spirit in us in different ways. Of course we do. So I'm not saying, therefore, everybody must clap their hands and wave around and swing from some chandeliers. Incidentally, we're saving up to buy some. Um, <laughs> the life of the Holy Spirit is so, it's so thick and rich that it can't help but produce in us in the church moments of the miraculous. Moments of the prophetic images and encouragements of the future. We call out God's vision for one another. I mean, Ross is, is wonderful for this. Often he'll send voice notes to people. He did it this week. Sent a voice note to a few of us as guys and just said, I love you guys. You're awesome. Keep going. God's in you. You're incredible. Just speaks positivity all the time. His confidence isn't that we're lovely snowflakes and you can do it. His confidence is God's in you. Imagine what potential there is in this room with a hundred and so people full of the Holy Spirit and the life of the age to come. But that life then ought to bubble over and we ought to experience that more. It, on the first day, uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the, the day of Pentecost. Peter had to stand up and reassure the crowd. These men are not drunk as you suppose, he had to say. Wouldn't that be great to have to say that in the church? Often in the churches, these men are not dead, as you suppose. <laughs> but Peter says, they're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, and they are, this is not a student town. That's in the Greek, if you read further into the detail. <laughs> That's why Paul says to the church in Turkey, he writes to them and says, he says, don't get drunk on wine. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And often people hear the prohibitions of the Christian life. Christians, stop getting drunk. Why? Because you're meant to replace it with a different... So the reason we get drunk, people get drunk, um, is normally, is normally there's a couple, isn't there? We get drunk to either escape life or to enhance life because it makes things more exciting and interesting. So Paul almost picks up that image of what drunkenness is about and says, don't do that. Get drunk be intoxicated with the life of the Holy Spirit who comes to enrich life and to make life thicker and more vivid for you. So the question then might be asked, how does he do this? How do we experience that? Well, in Romans 8, the bit we started with right at the beginning, there's several clues for us. Uh, it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not have Christ. If Christ is in you, the Spirit is life. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead and he who raised Jesus from the dead gives life through his spirit. The clues are in this, the close connection between Jesus and the spirit. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the spirit of Jesus. 
and he lives to draw people's attention away from themselves and onto the sun. I mean, in, in a nutshell, that's the human problem. We're like these beautiful supernovas with potential made in the image and likeness of God who've exploded into life and then turned in on ourselves to make a black hole. Well, that's how black holes are formed, bit of science for you. The supernova explodes and then it turns in on itself and consumes, sucks in everything around it. The human being, we're like that, made in the image of God with amazing potential, but we've turned away from God. We've exploded and turned in on ourselves to become self-centered. We've become consumers. We take, we grab, we suck in. And so the Holy Spirit's job is to turn your eyes off yourself and on to Jesus. In that sense, the Holy Spirit really is someone who prefers to be in the background, not because he's shy. He prefers to be in the background because he wants to shine a light on those he wants in the spotlight, namely Jesus. The Holy Spirit is like a, a lightning, lightning, lightning a lighting technician at the theater lighting up the relevant bits of the stage i want you to see this grasp that and it's, it's odd sometimes as christians we go to conferences because i want to experience the power of the holy spirit and the holy spirit would almost say look at jesus then and you'll know my life and you'll know my power another way of putting it is this the holy spirit is the sunlight that draws out the beauty of the bulb enabling the world to see, it draws out the beauty from the bulb, enabling the world to see the flower that was hidden inside the darkness. The Holy Spirit is the oxygen that enables us to live and that we're always in need of, but we're very rarely aware of. The Holy Spirit is the tide that rolls in unaware while everybody else is just looking at the waves. But the tide comes in, the tide goes out, and all we see is the wave. And so what's needed, what the Holy Spirit wants, how we receive his life in our lives is that we think about, we engage with, we pray to, we follow, we trust Jesus. That's how we live spirit-enriched lives. I love, this is how um, Charles Spurgeon, the preacher from the Victorian era, put it. He said this, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and onto Jesus but the Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For the devil is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness, shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, and our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives us rest for our soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking at Jesus. And he works on us to reveal to each one of us the love of God in Jesus. He wants you to know for yourself your need for God. And he comes to you in ways that you alone understand and can relate to. He speaks to you as though you alone were the only one in the audience which is partly why we must never pass judgment on someone else's spiritual experience because it's different from ours or they're not like us or they don't seem to express this or express that. The Holy Spirit comes to each one of us privately, personally and speaks in languages, your heart language in the way that only you can understand. I love uh, how the early church leader, um, an, a man named ba St. Basil of Caesarea, not enough people are called Basil in my opinion, 
um, probably because of Mr. Faulty and Basil Brush, but not enough people are named Basil. But this is someone who is named Basil, Basil of Caesarea. He was born just five years after the creed was written, so a long time ago. And he says this, the spirit is like a sunbeam whose grace is present to the one who enjoys it, as if it were present to that one alone, and yet it illuminates land and sea and is mixed with the air. Beautiful. What he's saying is on a warm summer's day like today, um, the sun hits you and you feel its warmth and its heat as though you're the only person who's experiencing it. But you know, you know that it, the sunlight is also being felt by everybody else and it's doing all that it does. But you can't feel that. But what you can feel is what the sun is doing to you. That's how the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us. You see, that's, that's really encouraging and comforting because the Holy Spirit does not require you to work on something or to be educated or to be employed or to understand theology. He does not, does not rely on you to be a moral person or an intellectual person or an emotional person. The Holy Spirit comes to you as you are and he warms you through with the love of God. Rather like that, that old advert from the 90s um, when the boy ate the porridge, the ready brick porridge. Do you remember this? He eats the ready brick porridge and you, there's a picture and his whole insides glow. Holy Spirit comes to warm each one of us with the love of God and open our eyes to what he's doing in our lives. He comes to breathe life, the life of the age to come to remind us God's in the world, God's at work, God's got you, God's going to carry you, he's in you, he's for you, he's with you. Now, a few stories. Uh, let me first of all tell you about a friend called Moshtaba. Uh, he's speaking here next Sunday. I first met Moshtaba several years ago in Turkey. He was age 27 at the time, and he'd arrived in Turkey from Iran for a couple of months. Moshtaba was imprisoned in Iran for over three years because he was a Christian. He was mistreated, he was beaten by the authorities, and he was kept in solitary confinement for over a month. I spoke to him just a few days ago, actually, and he, he radiates with, he now lives in Heathfield, because that's, that's weird, that's the world we're in. He radiates joy, and he even said to me, he considers his time in prison as being like a gift from God for him, beaten, mistreated, abused for his faith, and he says, oh, it was a privilege. Next person I want to tell you about is a, a girl named Neve. Neve uh, is from Worthing, and she's currently just finishing an, uh, an internship where she's been serving her church for a year. Neve grew up as an atheist in a home of people who, uh, they would say they were militantly atheistic. Um, in fact, she was militantly atheistic. She hated the idea of God. And she befriended a boy in her town at college, and after a few years of friendship, learned that he was a Christian. She was furious. And so she had some discussions with him and arguments about his faith until eventually he said to her, I can't convince you of anything. Why don't you pray and ask God if he's real to reveal himself to you? And she said to herself, okay, there is no God, so I've got nothing to lose. So she said, I'll, I'll give him three goes. I'm not sure why. Maybe something to do with genies and wishes. But she said, I'll give God three goes. And so uh, one day she was, she was sat on the field at college and she said, dear God, you don't exist. But if you do exist, reveal yourself to me. You haven't. You don't exist. And then a few days later, she was driving her car. She stopped at a red light, and she remembered, and she said, Oh, yeah, dear God, you don't exist. But if you do exist, please reveal yourself to me. You haven't. You don't exist. Feeling very smug. 
few days later, she was sat uh, at work. She works in a florist in Worthing, and it, the shop was empty. And she said, oh, I might as well pray my final prayer. I can prove that God doesn't exist. So she sat there and she prayed. She said, dear God, you don't exist. But if you do exist, reveal yourself to me. Oh, you haven't. You don't exist. And then a few seconds later, this little old lady walks into her shop, um, looking very nervous. She approaches the counter. She reaches into her handbag, takes out a Bible, reads her something from the book of Proverbs, and says to her, you've just been calling out to God, and he wants you to know he's got a plan for your life closes her Bible, walks out the shop, and Neve sat there going, what just happened? And so phones her friend who's a Christian and says, you never guess what just happened. And he says, yeah, that sounds like God. She's like, what do you mean that sounds like God? And so she's, I've spent a year with her. She's just been, um, she's just finishing, and she's still got a lot she's working through. I think she feels like she's been ambushed into the kingdom. Um, that's her experience. Next, let me tell you about one of our own the wonderful Tracy. Um, here we are. Tracy's in the church. She's sat just there. A few years ago, Tracy, she's, she, uh, this is with permission I share this. Well, she doesn't know what I'm going to say. I just said, can I say something? She said, sure. A few years ago, Tracy wouldn't have described herself as a believer or Christian. Um, she's a loving husband, two wonderful daughters. Uh, and then something in her sparked some interest. She spoke to a friend in Eastbourne who told her about church. She started going along. She found she had a desire to learn, to grow attended a course where she explored the Christian faith, and then a few years ago now, we baptized her, which is fantastic. Uh, next, let me tell you about someone else that we know, this man, a young man called Luke. Luke is a Christian and has been a Christian for some time. However, for a few years, uh, which he shared with us, due to underlying mental health problems, Luke became increasingly afraid of the devil and was convinced that he was going to be cut off from God and was terrified of hell. And so through, through a period of months and years, uh, working both with a professional counsellor and with some Christian friends, sat down and looked at what the Bible says about God's love for us, about our security and assurance that we can know we're his forever. On one occasion, there was a moment of clarity, and the fear that he had of the devil vanished and was replaced with a confidence that he's loved and known by God. And finally, let me tell you about someone else. Uh, this person helps to lead a church and preaches regularly, and yet this person, uh, due to a series probably of long-term just thought patterns and over-competitiveness, found himself becoming increasingly angry, depressed, bitter, and jealous of those around him. Uh, envy had a big grip on him and was isolating him from his friends, uh, making him wanting to quit on church and on God. Well, several months ago, this person sat with a Christian friend again, invited the Holy Spirit, the wonderful counselor, to come and help. This person repented of believing things that aren't true, of lies, and experienced a, a joy and a freedom and a peace that he had not known for a long time. And uh, this person still has lots to work through. And I know that because this person is me. And I'm so grateful for what God is doing in my life that I'm not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination. But compared to how I was, particularly in September last year, I was, I was angry, bound up, envious of everyone, 
insecure, trying to control and manipulate situations. And I repented, and the Holy Spirit filled me with a, just a peace that says, I know I'm loved. And he's helping me to walk that out for the rest of my life. I'm very grateful. Now, what do all those stories have in common? They are all examples of how the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, those are all examples of how the Holy Spirit works in a person's life. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit's activity is broad and not narrow. It encapsulates all of that. According to the Bible, he comforts us, he gives us joy, he blesses us when we're insulted, he enables us to bear up under persecution, he gives us confidence of our eternal security, he sets us free, he gives us access to God, he transforms our character, and he works miracles among us. He gives gifts to us and sets us free from sin and fear. And this is what the creed says. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son and is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And he speaks to us today. The Bible says that we should long for his activity and we should eagerly desire, chase after the spiritual gifts. One more story, um, something to encourage us with of what the Holy Spirit has done just this last week, uh, and then we're going to respond together, is Ross. So I, uh, I keep asking God, Lord, give me names outside at work, wherever I am. Give me names of people who I can go and say to them, oh, does this name mean anything to you? And uh, I, was at, um, I was at work this week, and there's a Hungarian guy uh, working with us this week. I call him Muscles because he's built like a tank. And, uh, and I just had this name come to my mind as I was looking at him. So I went up to him and I said, what's your wife's name? And he said what it was. And it wasn't the name I had. And I said, has she got a middle name? And he said, yeah. I said, it's not Maria, is it? And he went, how do you know that? And I said, oh, the God I, the God I love and loves me, he told me. And he was like, okay, I, I've grown up in a God family. I said, oh, that's good. And we're just chatting for a bit. And I said, I'll just, you're going on holiday next week, aren't you? And he said, yes. And I said, God's going to give your wife a dream. This is what I felt. I said, I felt God saying that he's going to give your wife a dream of something that she dreamt a long time ago that she hasn't thought about for a long time, but it's going to come to pass. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, and we just got chatting and stuff like that. And then I, a bit later on, he's just, he was talking about a, a, a problem he has within his stomach. So I didn't. I was, I'm always like, as soon as someone says something, I need to pray for them, otherwise I never will. But I thought, right, I'm going to pray for him. So um, just as he was leaving, I walked outside uh, and I said, just before you go, that problem you've got, can I pray for you? And he was like, what? And I said, the God I, be the God I believe in heals people, and I think he's going to heal your whatever you have wrong with you. He said, oh, okay. So I put my hand on his, on his stomach, and I just prayed for him and asked the Holy Spirit to come and heal him. And I'm waiting with excitement. He gets back in two weeks, and I want to see what dreams his wife has had, and I want to, I want to know that he can eat anything and not be sick. Yeah. Yes. Well done, mate. Let's give him a round of applause. Simple. The Holy Spirit speaks. And all we have to do is have the courage to invite or to step out. Let's pray. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus yet, if you wouldn't say you're a Christian, you've got questions, ask God to reveal himself to you like Neve did. 
Ask him to help you with the things that you're wrestling with. What have you got to lose? Holy Spirit, come and show us more of Jesus. Come and show us the life of Jesus. Come and work through us and bring the joy of Jesus. We welcome you. We make room for you. Father, this is not a new part of Christianity. We just want the really old bits of Christianity to come, come back into our modern experience of Christianity. Lord, we read things in the Bible of prophetic words like Ross shared. We read in the Bible of people being healed by the Holy Spirit on a regular basis of power from heaven. And we want that. We want the most traditional Christianity there is. Please come and do that today.